You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Looks like Tommy Carroll having a dig right now. Here he goes, the two times world champion. This guy used to own Pipeline as he comes off the bottom. Lines in, amazing barrel, and it spits him out once again. Tommy's first barrel didn't count. Now this one in the heat. He'll fade back, classic Tommy Carroll style. What year is it, ladies and gentlemen? This is, uh, he's winding the clock back and just comes flying out of that barrel. He said he hasn't surfed out here for quite some time. He's got a, a very insane relationship with this wave Joni has for a long long time look at this just classic Tom Carroll draws off the bottom perfect positioning one of the best tube riders out here and comes out Tom Carroll is channeling that year that he just dominated out here no one could touch this guy when he was on fire That was, of course, Martin Potter calling Tom Carroll's uh, 9.6 pipeline bomb that he caught this past December to win the Heritage Series heat during the Pipe Masters event. Tom Carroll is, of course, the subject of today's episode of Surf Splendor. I'm David Scales, a three-time Pipe Master and two-time world champion in 1983 and 1984, Tom's known for his stout, muscular build and really for logging more tube time than just about anybody else on the planet. Last year, he released a book simply titled TC, and it's a memoir. It was written or co-written by his brother, Nick Carroll, and the book details not only the highs of Tom's career, but also some pretty gritty, previously unrevealed, and actually very scary low points in Tom's life. I personally was lucky enough to spend a day with Tom uh, in May of 2014, and Quicksilver basically invited me to tag along for a day trip to Lowers. Tom was in town visiting his longtime sponsor, and they had scheduled a day for Tom to surf with all the local Quicksilver Groms, Kanoa Igarashi among them. And we basically piled into the Quicksilver van. We picked up Tom at Bob McKnight's house where he was staying. And I just remember being struck initially um, by how little Tom had and has aged. He was sprightly, he was full of energy. At age 53, Tom looks as fit as ever and honestly surfs pretty much as well as he ever has. His approach was just so classic and um, entirely different from everyone else surfing lowers on that day and really any day ever at lowers. He stays like super low and centered, uh, rarely overextends any of his turns or anything. He's just really low and centered on his board. As often as I've watched him surf and as little as he's actually changed in the past 30 years, his approach is still really awe-inspiring and it gave me brand new ideas for body placement, angles, positioning, 
ways to get more drive out of bottom turns and top turns. He was surfing much faster and much more powerfully than anyone else in the lineup. And he actually made everything look entirely effortless. So it was a really, really awesome day to spend with Tom. And unfortunately, we didn't have time enough to record a podcast. Um, he, Tom always has a busy schedule and he was in the midst of doing press for this book that he had just released. So he's flying out the following day and, um, we were however, able to sit and have a nice long lunch and we had a bit of time in the car chatting and I asked him about his book and some of the revelations that he made in the book about his struggles with drug addiction and Tom was actually really thoughtful in all of his responses and really intentional with his words. He was articulate, he was optimistic, but he also seemed just to be very practical about the reality of addiction. And he mostly talked about his motivating factor for not only writing the book, for, but for coming public with this information. And that motivating factor was just the goal of helping other people. He said that much of his struggle went on a lot longer than needed simply because he kept it such a quiet secret. And he said that each person who is touched by his message of recovery gives him more strength and motivation to stay in recovery. And that's part of his process. And so I even asked just out of my own sincere curiosity about book sales and if it had been a success and all that. And he never really acknowledged that. He just kept circling back and refocusing his attention on spreading the message of recovery and also helping to destigmatize addiction, you know, to, to get it out of secret, basically, because that was such a, a driving force for him in his life. So. Although we were unable to record a podcast that day, Tom was in Southern California recently and he gave a talk at Hobie Surf Shop in Dana Point, where the night was emceed by Quicksilver founder and longtime friend of Tom, Bob McKnight. So much of the audio from this episode was poached from that evening. And um, I'll also splice in some other audio, including a profile on Tom that 60 Minutes actually did, talking about his book and um, some of the things that I've just discussed, but in much more detail. So without any further ado, um, here's more from Tom about Pipeline, and you'll occasionally hear Bob McKnight chime in as well. Yeah, so that, that little moment, there's sort of a, uh, you know, pipeline's always been a, a really a big thing for me. Um, ever since I was a kid, uh, I watched uh, Jerry Lopez, uh, you know, he's a bit of an idol of mine. Um, you know, he, he actually, uh, I used to watch surf movies on a, on a Sunday night. I used to get my father to, uh, you know, we never had videos back then. We didn't have iPhones and stuff like that. So... Uh, I used to get my father, you know, like beg my father, my brother and I just beg my father to, to give us a dollar fifty on a Sunday night and go and watch the movies at the, the town just next door to us. Um, and he'd drive us to the movies and it'd be, you know, Jerry Lopez surfing pipeline on the big screen, you know. And, and it just, it was just stunning watching, you know, the way he surfed it and just come through the barrel. I've gone off, you know, 
I, I just dream about it, just basically sort of that the dream was implanted to me you know, that those sort of evenings. And um, and the next morning, I'd get up before school, uh, before light, and I'd just be it'd just be running through my head. And the thing is, our and the way the wave approaches and the way the sun is um, at pipeline in the afternoon, you get this backlit effect, this beautiful back lighting in the wave and shining through the, the roof of the wave in the, in the movies. And the next morning, it'd be, you know, the sun would be coming over the ocean, uh, rising, and I'd get this same sort of backlit effect on the wave. And so the dream would be there right in front of me in the, before I go to school in the morning. And of course, that was in front of me, you know, it was... That was where it all sort of started. And uh, Lopez had a great uh, bit of um, advice, um, style, and how to actually approach the barrel, and I'll never forget it. And it was, uh, I, don't, I can't remember which movie it was, but he said, when you approach the barrel, you come in, and the best, it was the best bit of advice, was to come in, and when you approach the barrel, it's to tuck that front arm in and pull the shoulder, shoulder in so you, you, your head didn't hit the lip. And, uh, and that, for me, was like the, the start that got me moving got me through the barrel <laughs> and uh yeah so pipeline from there on in uh before i even got there uh was a part of my life mm. yeah i was there the day when he had the snap heard what a snap heard around the world i guess is what became yeah yeah i was on the beach with bruce raymond and a few others and just you know pipe masters and all that stuff and tommy came out of one of the houses whatever and he he walked up and he, so the, the ocean's back here, right? And we're sitting there watching the ocean. He comes up to us like this. And he, I'll never forget, I mean, first of all, you, know, you need to know a little bit of, know about his personality. He's the most aggro, <laughs> a nutcase surfer, um, frothing maniac, young little boy you'll ever know. Um, and I could go on. Don't ever, ever go on a surf trip with him because you will get one wave for every one of his ten. And oftentimes you'll be getting your, you'll, he'll be getting his, just going circles around you. And then all of a sudden you get one. And he goes, "Come on, let's ride it together." And before he has said it, he stood up and he's riding it with you. And he's like, "No, Tom, I don't want you on my wave right now." But anyway, so he's a, a, a very um, focused, aggressive personality person so anyway back to the story we're sitting there watching pipe and this is the mask the pipeline masters is on and he's it's his heat coming up and he walks up to us with his board one of those fanged boards you know with the what you used to call that the it's the sash the right? sash yeah, yeah. and he he walks up to us and he, and he looks at us he goes so what's going on you guys and he takes the board and he sticks the nose in you can go about a foot in before it stops he pushed this board in about three to four feet into the sand, just going, so how is it? Is it good out there? Is it good out there? And we're looking at him just going, oh, my God. And I'll never forget it. And then he went out there, and he did that. That's That snap around the world kind of thing. But that that's my memory of it. By the way, that same day, just a little bit of Quicksilver history, we saw this. We started Roxy. We saw this young girl um, walk by who had a pair of guys' board shorts, but they were rolled up over her bikini. So the bikini line was way up here, and then the shorts were rolled up, and they were really sexy on her. And I was with our swimmer designer, and we both looked at her and just went, aha. And that became the Roxy board short. So a little bit of the news on that same day.
I had a relationship with the ocean pretty quick um, when I was a kid, and uh, I never felt afraid in the ocean. And um, so I was always looking to kind of, I was always sort of mesmerised by it, and um, and it used to scare the living daylights out of my father, <laughs> basically. But uh, for some reason, it used to just draw me out there, and I think forever and a day. Uh, when I, I started surfing, when I was seven. Um, and as soon as I could get my get my hands on a, a fiberglass surfboard, that I'd pinch off my friends and get myself out into the surf that looked like I couldn't get out in, um, and that's where I'd I'd get myself into a bit of trouble from time to time. But I liked that feeling of being out in surf that was um, above my, you know, uh, capabilities. I just loved that feeling of being in amongst the storm, <laughs> if you like. And, uh, and and that was from the get-go. And, and I noticed that with the f- really this friend I started surfing with, brilliant surfer, better surfer than what I was. And, uh, and he'd just go missing <laughs> when it got over three feet, you know, uh, when I was a kid. And I'd just go, what is wrong with him? <laughs> I just didn't get it. i go, you got a cold? What? What's wrong with you, <laughs> you know? Um, I never got it, and I think that was in my blood. Uh, I can't say it's a very, you know, it's I'm lucky to get <laughs> come through my teens. I tell you. Um, so I'd say to young kids out there today who want to go surfing big waves, just take it one step at a time, and uh, and and go it with your dad. Go it with someone who is experienced, and uh, and take it one step at a time. At a time yeah. The Japanese culture is very, very special too. Um, for what I've been exposed to, my second trip overseas when I was 17 years of age uh, to go and compete. Uh, I went there. I went to Japan to compete for six weeks, and at 17, that was I didn't know what I was getting myself into. But my first meal, when I woke up in the morning after the flight, uh, I was served up a meal, um, and I had six weeks ahead of me, mind you. And I'm 17. I'm just this kid that waits cocoa pops in the morning, and you know, like you know, that sort of guy. And um, <laughs> and I get served up this dried fish, like the things like curled up on the plate, and and it doesn't look like it's got any meat on it at all. I've got a bowl of rice, and it's got a raw egg on it. And I'm going six weeks, man. I just freaked out. <laughs> I freaked out. Uh, I, I did, I imploded like down in a moment, I go, ah, what am I going to do? And uh, so six weeks was a big eye-opener and I um, got to learn how to eat raw fish um, and all that sort of stuff, you know, fish eggs, you know, like all this eel, you know, seaweed. Um, and so, uh, and, and kind of look at way everything was backwards, you know, and so that sparked my imagination. And, uh, and forever, I think I was broken into travel, broken into culture and a culture shock uh, that sort of broke me into this sort of person I became, which was a kind of a person travelling around the world constantly for what I do. Yeah. You love all that food? I love that food. I love Japanese food. It's cool how the whole... Back then, 79, it wasn't that popular sushi. It just wasn't really known to us. And for them, you know, being Western in their country, it was just like, what's this guy? you got freckles? You know? They're just like, whoa, dude, you're small like us, but you got freckles. 
<laughs> that was awesome. Tom always travels with a camera too. He's very busy with the camera all the time. He loves taking pictures, so he's got billions of pictures. I got shots of those first trips to Japan. That's <laughs> for sure. G-Land, or Garagagon, is one of the finest barreling left-hand reef breaks in the world, and also a spot that Tommy Carroll has surfed probably as much as any other professional surfer. It's on the southeast tip of Java, and was first surfed in 1972 by Americans Bob Laverty, who spotted the break a few months earlier during a plane ride from Jakarta to Bali, and Bill Boyum. The two surfers packed camping gear and motorcycled from Bali to the Javanese fishing village of Garajagon, ferried across the bay, and followed the shorefront edge buffered by the dense rainforest. For three days, they surfed perfect six to eight foot waves at Garajagon, camping on the beach near the jungle before returning back to Bali. Sadly, Laverty died in a surfing accident just a few days after returning to Bali, but word of the surf spot spread quickly. Mr. Pipeline himself, Jerry Lopez, who of course was one of Tom Carroll's biggest influences, was an early and frequent visitor to G-Land. When Pipeline went dormant in the spring, he'd spend May through October racing the barreling reefs at G-Land. Lopez even went on record stating that he actually preferred G-Land to Pipeline. So this is another very special place on the planet, very tip of Java. Um, I actually took my wife there. My wife's here, by the way. Where are you? Hello. Amen. <laughs> anyway, we stayed in one of those tree houses, and I surfed, and we had pirates come, and you know, tigers in the jungle, and the whole trip. But Tommy, tell us your because you have a very special um, like uh, heart about G Land. Uh, we ran some events there. Tom and I were very fortunate to be able to go there at very early stages of G-Land. And it's, it is the most perfect left you can imagine. So just give us a few words about the spot, Tom. Yeah. Well, um, G-Land's on the uh, this very sort of southeasternmost tip of Java. Um, Java's one of the most populated land masses on the planet. Um, but uh, in this area, it's actually a national park. It's actually a national nature reserve. It actually has uh, tigers, it has um, um, black panther, um, it's got huge pythons, it's just, you really feel like you're in, it's got deer and you know, the amazing orangutans, a whole lot, um, and monkeys have come down and take all the food. <laughs> but uh, on the edge of this amazing um, park is this beautiful reef, and it faces into the swells that come off the southern ocean and um, hit the same places as Bali, you know, um, uh, same sort of swells as Bali. But uh, back in, uh, you know, the 80s, we, we kind of, I think actually in the 70s it was, it was discovered, right? Um, but um, just to be able to get there was a real big mission. And, and it's also, once we were in there, you know, basically travelled for, you know, a day and a night just to get to the boat to get across the bay. And then once we were in the camp, you're kind of caught there and um, you're, sort of, you're stuck in this most idyllic place. You just don't want to get injured. You don't want anything wrong to go wrong. And um, also there's malaria and so on, so we have to be very careful. But uh, So it, it sort of added to the exotic nature of being there, especially back then. Um, 
but it's a beautiful wave. It's got three different waves in the one section of the reef, and uh, and it just it's just an extraordinary surfing experience. So if you ever get a chance and you want the adventure, um, it is a bit easier to get to today, um, but it sort of it just adds to every part of us as a surfer. We can you know join in with uh, an extraordinary experience, super exotic experience in the, in, in what we do. And uh, express ourselves. It's beautiful, beautiful place to be for anybody. I'll chime in there too. It's just it's an amazing spot. And as Tommy said, I mean, you're you're out there. The, the boat drops you off for ten days, two weeks, however long it is, and and they usually have a cooler full of rice, a cooler full of noodles, noodles, cooler full of vegetables, and then they buy some fresh fish if the fishermen come in. And you're just you're there. So like he said, you don't want to get hurt, and it's one of the most dangerous shallow reefs probably in the world but it's perfect so it's it's you know, kind of hard to mess up on a perfect way or whatever but but um it's just one of those special spots uh that if you ever get a chance to go it's like you said it's a lot more human now there's there's the camp and you can have smoothies in the morning and banana pancakes and all that kind of stuff but um back then was a real it was a real adventure but an unbelievable wave on the planet one of the best sessions i've ever had at g-land um was in 1997, it was the Quicksilver Pro, was was about to start, and every surfer was surfed out in the camp, and everyone turned up for the day, all the competitors, and it had been an amazing start. It, the event was starting the next day, and uh, it was just absolutely flawless G-Land all day, and all everyone was surfed out. And about 4 p.m., I was looking at Speed Reef, which is just this long barrel just gets longer and longer and longer as the, the tide runs out and uh, the swell is just absolutely flawless and I never forget that afternoon because there was nobody out I was looking around the camp nobody's surfing everyone's completely buggered right and I'm just going what an opportunity and there was one other guy Steve Palmer who did Quicksilver in uh, in Bali in Indonesia and me and him looked, we looked at each other and said well let's go out and, uh, and I went out there and, and it was absolutely flawless. I'll never forget that afternoon. It was one of the most extraordinary surfs I've ever had. And I got to actually stay in the... I can't tell how long it was, but that afternoon is, is a great memory for me um, in, in tube riding. And I just got to stay within, kind of inside the barrel for kind of pretty much however long I wanted to uh, until the wave ended. Yeah. So I was pretty happy. <laughs> I was like very happy. No, no one come out, and it was just sheet glass. It was like nothing, not a drop of water out of place. So yeah, I was a lucky, lucky guy. Oh, um, I was up in the Tuamotus, uh, which is just a whole string of uh, like necklaces of reef to the northeast of Tahiti. Uh, if anyone knows of the Tuamotus. Um, has some fantastic surf on them really remote part of the world a lot of sea life all kinds of sea life and on the reef passes there's just huge lagoons you can't even see the other strip of land there's just massive lagoons and when there's a break in the reef there's usually a wave on the edge so I go to left or right but right through the middle of it there's this giant current getting sucked out of the the water coming out of the lagoon, this massive lagoon. So you've got these standing waves literally through the current. And what loves those currents, what I found out, were manta rays. And I was surfing this wave and literally coming out of the end of this wave this one day, 
and just a huge school of money, just like Jurassic Park. It's massive manta rays. I thought they were sharks. You just see the tip of their fin. It freaked me out. I come at the end of this. They didn't even care I was there either. They're just like, whatever, there's that little thing in the way. <laughs> and not only that, there was a lot of other animals out there, but these guys, that was just the most extraordinary moment of my life for those giant manta rays at the end of this beautiful uh, left-hander I was surfing. Yeah. In one of surfing's more embarrassing moments, um, in an attempt to kind of monetize or uh, capitalize on the rising popularity of the sport, Tom Carroll found himself surfing against another world champion and pipe master, Derek Ho, in a wave pool in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Tom's the only one that's won a contest in a wave pool, too, in the world <laughs> tour, as we all know. And uh, he told me the little secret that at Surf Expo is that was it Derek Ho you were surfing against in the final? And I was surfing against my, my pipeline guy, you know, like Derek Ho. And, uh, and we're at this wave pool in Allentown. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And, uh, and it sh- it sh- what it was, it, it shot out, like it had these big flaps at one side of the pool, you know. And it'd send off a swell uh, with a three-second interval, which is like, like a little baby wind swell. I mean, you know, when you get a proper swell, it's about... A real swell, it's about, you know, 16-second period up above, you know, real proper swell. A fun swell's around about sort of eight seconds period, you know, 10-second period. I mean, a three-second period, you've got to be watching what's going on, right? You'd be quick. <laughs> and this, is, this isn't salt water, it's fresh water. So it's even equally, it's sort of, you're just sinking all the time. And, and I, plus, it's, I can see right through to the pool. I can't tell where the surface of the water is, so I've got to get a lot to get used to this thing. And another thing is it shot out at 15 waves, right? And by the time the, the water had rotated in and out of the pool, I figured out the best wave was the 11th wave. Can you go for that? And it was kind of became a science project for me. It really was. <laughs> and I could perform more on that 11th wave, the 11th wave, can you believe it? And, uh, and I got Derek on that. Derek didn't figure that one out. Outsmarted Derek. <laughs> Outsmarted Derek in a wave pool. <laughs> it was the funniest, it's the strangest feeling, uh, riding around with surfboards on the roof in Allentown. It was very strange. Tom Carroll's also one of the few professional surfers that's known for wearing a helmet at dangerous surf spots. So somebody in the audience this evening asked a question about that, and Tom actually gave a pretty convincing answer for why he chooses to do so. Okay, it started in, uh, you know, 87, at the 87 Pipeline Masters. You know, when I was a young teenager, um, I was accident-prone. I was pretty much like Bob said earlier, you know, I was pretty gung-ho and um, kind of forced the issue a little, <laughs> a little bit too much. And, uh, and that's my energy. And, uh, and, I, and when it came to Pipeline, I knew that, well, number one, I, I met this surfer in Hawaii. His name is Beaver Massafella. You remember Beaver Massafella? Uh, anyway, he got hit in the head by his surfboard uh, surfing Sunset Beach. And he got a plate put in his head, and he just never was quite the same, you know? 
had a little sort of something missing. And so I thought, man, if I, I hit my head at Pipeline, um, I don't want to sort of, you know, be wearing the in a helmet after the fact and have a little something missing. And, uh, and that's what I started. I started looking at Pipeline. I thought, I want to be relaxed when I take off behind the peak. I want to be relaxed when I'm further back than anyone. I want to get further back than anyone at Pipeline. I want to go for it as hard as I can. And so really, um, uh, a precaution, uh, there, was a, there was a person making surfing helmets in Australia uh, and because he'd had an injury. And, uh, and I thought, well, maybe I'll give that a try. And basically, it was really just a, a, a kayaker's help, you know, a whitewater kayaker's helmet, uh, just adjusted so we could sort of, you know, take a bit of a hit and a wave. And um, and so I thought, well, I'm going to ride and use that a pipeline. I'm going to get further back than anyone. And but the big deal, what I didn't realise was, once I put that helmet on, I was that much more relaxed. I didn't know that at the time. Uh, and I, to be honest, um, it was the best thing I did for my surfing at Pipeline was to put a helmet on uh, because I did crack my head. And that's the one thing that takes lives at Pipeline is when you get knocked out and there's been numerous, numerous deaths from head injury at Pipeline. And so, uh, you know, you get knocked out and I've actually pulled some out um, of the water with, with uh, Troy Brooks, another uh, now an employee of Cooksaw, but uh, a surfer at that point, a young surfer of for Cooksilver, we pulled a guy out in 1998, uh, and his name was Courtney Gray, and uh, he's from Western Australia, he usually wears a helmet, this day he wasn't wearing a helmet, and uh, i never forget what we call, uh, we saw his board, what we call tombstoning, and it's a real telltale, telltale sign that in the current, down off the side of pipeline, where the water's like emptying out of the break, uh, about halfway out, we saw this board being tombstoned with boards being sort of basically pulled down by the tail and the leg rope by the, the weight of the, of the body, which is down, getting dragged along the sand underneath the water. So when you see that, you know, it's sort of a sinking feeling and you don't want to see it. You kind of go, I don't want to see that. But the only one really thing we did, we just went, we've got to go and get him because the lifeguards weren't getting him. So literally went over and we paddled out, grabbed him, and the first thing I, I saw was I grabbed him by the leg rope, pulled him up, and he was grey. And uh, so I ended up calling Courtney, caught me grey. So anyway, this guy, uh, to my surprise, uh, and I got a real big lesson that day, that, uh, you know, had a big gash in the back of his head. He'd been knocked out. And, uh, and I learned a lot that day about, you know, this guy looked to me to be dead. I actually pulled the guy into the shore break. He landed on me in the shore break and having a dead body on his shore break. It's not so pretty. It's a very, very heavy weight. But we got him up. Uh, lifeguards got working on him. Uh, and the good news is that he did survive. Somehow, uh, miraculously, uh, in two days' time, he got medibacked out. Uh, you know, um, and two days later, he came around with his parents and he looked completely different. He was just all full of colour and life and... Uh, you know, just completely changed and was able to say uh, thank you. But uh, that was an extraordinary story and that confirmed that wearing a helmet at Pipeline was a good idea. <laughs> so I stay with it. Even though at times, especially if it's a last moment decision to go surf pipe, heart surfing in a helmet is different and, and need to get some, you need to get used to it. And even a few millimetres, few, I mean a few centimetres off the head, uh, it's amazing how finely we cut it on the, in the barrel and the lip and how we judge it if we, you know, 
wear a helmet and get caught um, takes a bit of getting used to. Yeah. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This next portion of audio in today's show was pulled directly from an episode of 60 Minutes that Tom Carroll did talking about his new book, TC. And in it, he details his journey through addiction, hitting rock bottom, and then finding his way to recovery. Good evening and welcome to 60 Minutes. Tom Carroll is a living legend, a former world champion who redefined surfing and even today chases the biggest waves on the planet. But what few of his fans realise is it's not massive surf that threatens to wipe out Tom Carroll, rather a long-term, life-threatening battle with drugs. Now, in a tell-all, brutally honest book co-written with his brother Nick, Tom Carroll is coming clean. It's a story of triumph, heartbreak and addiction. But at its core, it's a tale of two brothers and the revelation of a shocking family secret that would ironically help save Tom's life. For Tom Carroll, there really is only one way to greet the dawn. He's been drawn east to the ocean all his life. For as long as he can remember, he belongs out here. Does it give you the same joy? Gives me the same sort of joy. Uh, I can still go out and get incredible um, connection to myself in the ocean. If the ocean has been Tom's mistress, he has been her master. One of the greatest surfers ever to put foot on fiberglass. 
Even at 51, he still shows the form that made him a two-time world champion. He's one of the greatest ever. Always will be. So it's no exaggeration that Tom, your brother, is being hailed one of the greatest surfers of all time. No, it's not exaggeration at all. The height of a jockey, the strength of a boxer. Tom Carroll is utterly fearless in the surf. Getting hit by an avalanche of white water never worried him. But a drug called ice almost buried him. Tonight, Tom Carroll is surfacing as a drug addict. It was killing me. It was killing me uh, from the inside out. Desperate? Desperate. I was desperate. Uh, yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> oh, very desperate. I was a desperate addict. And, um, uh, and I didn't stop there. I mean, it's a powerful life force inside me that's trying to kill me. To understand why a man so at home at sea could get so utterly lost on land, you have to go back to the beginning, to Newport on the northern beaches of Sydney. Tom, the youngest, Nick and his sister Josephine were the children of Sydney Morning Herald editor Vic Carroll and their mother Janet. My only memory really of her was just on the kitchen floor and um, sort of um, me inquiring about, you know, when is my birthday? And, and she said, oh, you're going to be four in, in three months. I remember her saying that. Tragically, Janet Carroll died from pancreatic cancer when Tom was only seven. But her last Christmas present to her son, a cool light surfboard, would shape his life. There was the beginning. There it is. You know, my mum passes away. Uh, I was given a surfboard. And then all and the ocean was close by. And along came this incredible urge to be in the ocean. Every waking moment, every spare second. Tom begged his dad to take him surfing. Then, one Thursday afternoon down at Newport Beach, destiny. I'm going to stand up on this wave and it let me up. And I stood up for this moment before I hit the shore, right in front of my father and my sister. And I said, Dad, did you see that? I stood up for a minute and he said, no, Tom, you're up for about a couple of seconds. And I, no, <laughs> you know. Tom Carroll was on his way. And with his older brother Nick, surfing became everything. While Nick claimed two Australian Open titles, Tom conquered the world, twice in 1983 and 84. But it was here at Pipeline on the north shore of Hawaii that he really had to prove himself on a wave that is both perfect and deadly. 
that's definitely a place where we, where we man up and, and, um, and get to see who we really are with the wave. At Pipeline, Tom Carroll became the man, revolutionising how the wave was written. But in 1987, the whole world got to see what Tom Carroll was truly made of. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, that was um, one of the most extraordinary days <laughs> I've ever had. Tom fronted up to the final of the Pipeline Masters just hours after learning that back in Australia, his sister Jo had been killed in a car crash. That day, he surfed like he'd never surfed before. Miraculously, I was in tune with the ocean, like in, in a way I hadn't ever felt before in competition, especially. It was a pure moment. There was no, nothing, nothing was getting in the way. And I knew that um, what my father told me over the, he said, I looked out, I think Joe would like you to stay in Hawaii instead of coming home because I was ready to jump on a plane. I said, she probably want you to win that, you know. That probably was the greatest tribute you could. <laughs> make that day for her. That was it. Yeah, it was for it was for Joe. I think it's really telling the way Tom can operate on different levels. I think maybe it changed things for Tom in ways that didn't might not even be clear now. With two more pipeline masters. Tom Carroll cemented his place in surfing history. He signed a million dollar contract, married his girlfriend Lisa, and became dad to three beautiful girls. He had it all, or so it seemed. What few knew was that Tom Carroll was slowly losing his life to drugs. You had your first line of cocaine when you were... 18, yeah. And in this time, it mm. didn't feel wrong. I was one of those kids that was shy, and I, I needed something to connect. Uh, well, the first time I actually took something, I actually, um, in a social situation, I realised that I could loosen up and connect. Cocaine, ecstasy, LSD. For more than 20 years, Tom would binge sometimes for days, straighten out, but then relapse. Nick Carroll became so worried, he found Tom's dealer and rang him. So I say, well, what, what um, hand do you write with? He said, oh, right hand. I said, all right, well, look, if I find you've been giving my brother cocaine, I'm going to come up there, I'm going to break your right arm. And there was, there was a silence, and then the voice at the other end said, what? And there was just silence. And I said, look, are we clear? And he's like, yeah. So I just hung up. And uh, I never knew it was Tom on the other end. <laughs> that was you. Mm. You took the call. Yeah, I took the call. You happened to be with the dealer. Well, he wasn't actually in the room. I was actually the only one in there. I just grabbed the phone for him. And, uh, and lo and behold, it was my brother on the other end of the phone. You never let on. I never let on. 
In 2002, Tom Carroll started using ice. As powerful as it is addictive, it rapidly became his drug of choice. I felt this insidious need to take, to take more of it. I mean, I'd only have to take a little bit of it and, uh, you know, at the beginning, and it did last for a long time. What did it do to you? I was at a point when, um, uh, you know, I was had to use every day to be functional. And every day? Pretty much every day. I got daily. And that was, that was that's when I realised, you know, that I got, you know, I mean, it was, it had me. Did your personality change? Sure, I was completely manic and um, um, my response to everything was, um, like, fearful and uh, I was crazy. Like, um, I was getting to that point where <laughs> I was running around like a chick with his head cut off like you do on amphetamines. In general, this didn't stop. You know, it didn't stop when he stopped being a pro surfer. It didn't stop when, you know, he'd kind of shaken off the last of his, you know, competitive aspirations. Uh, it didn't stop when he had three kids. It was here. Here it was. You know, and it was and it was going to kill him. Well, what did bring it to a halt? What what ultimately stopped you in your tracks? Um, yeah, for me. I just felt so um, hollow uh, emotionally. Um, I wasn't connected to anyone anymore um, other than the dealer and the drug. In 2006, just before Christmas, Tom checked into the South Pacific Rehab Hospital. Around this time, Nick trying to learn more about his mother's life, accessed her medical records. I spent an afternoon just sitting on the floor reading it. Uh, it's really dark material. Uh, I read a section where they described that they'd had a strong suspicion that she'd been a, a drug addict, that she'd had multiple drug addiction issues and that uh, chief among those was amphetamines. Um, and uh, as soon as I read that, I kind of... I, I saw the pathway that had happened here, you know? Um, at least part of it. Janet Carroll's addiction was a secret not even her husband Vic had known. For Tom, it was the knowledge he needed. How powerful was that information? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it's an incredibly powerful piece of information for me. And um, this, this disease of addiction, it, it, it's a family thing. It, it goes way back. And no wonder that, you know, my first response to an amphetamine was, ah, that's right, and that feels right. Tom Carroll understood he now faced a lifelong battle with addiction. But he didn't realise how difficult it would be until six months into rehab when he came face to face with his ice dealer at a roundabout. And asked to score off him. And he said, yeah, it's on this afternoon. I said, yeah, OK, well, that's great. Well, I've got your number in. I tapped his number into my phone, but I didn't save it. 
kept on going through the roundabout, looking at him in the rear vision mirror, taking not even knew, knowing, knowing that I had to take an action without thinking at that point and then just wiping the phone number. And I consciously um, deleted the number then. Had I saved the number, life would be a lot different right now. Tell you now, Liz. Life-saving. Life-saving. Uh, I looked in the rear vision mirror. Even then, looking in the rear vision mirror, I wanted to turn around and chase him. But he didn't. And today, seven years on, Tom Carroll is clean. It's come at a cost, though. Tom and his wife Lisa separated, and he's worked hard to bond with his children who've had to understand their dad is an addict. And, you know, he's with Gracie surfing. Yeah. She's about to get away. <laughs> she's about to get away. Yay! <laughs> Tom's daughters have their dad's same love of the sea. And eldest daughter Jenna is grateful that she has her father back. I've got no anger towards my father for being that way. I just, I just respect what he's done and um, really proud of him, if anything. Mm. Now that you see your dad in recovery, do you see the difference? Oh, he couldn't be a different person now. Like, really? The person that I knew for the first 14 years of my life isn't... He just isn't that anymore. It's been a long, turbulent ride. But Tom Carroll has finally found peace. He has a new partner, Mary Graham, who shares his passion for the water. And he has a brother who's shown that he'll always be by his side. Oh, geez, Nick, I really thank, thank you for everything. And he goes, oh, well, sometimes, you know, you know, you know we'll, we need each other's shoulders to stand on, you know. And I love that. You know, I just felt that support, that brotherly support, and um, hmm. and I'll, I'll be there for my brother. So it's just sort of, it sort of affirms that nice space that you know, family are there for you know, to help each other along. They're obviously proud of where he's come to. Oh, I'm deeply proud of Tom. He's my little brother. <laughs> <laughs> As I mentioned, when I spent that day with Tom in May, he looked as healthy as I've ever seen him look and just lucid and um, really a lot of clarity of mind. And he talked a lot about fitness. He was kind of preaching about fitness and uh, does a lot of yoga. And we had lunch at this vegan restaurant and he you know, talked about the importance of putting good food in your body and avoiding sugar. And one of the things, one of the activities that he does is a cross-training for surfing and really just for fun and recreation is stand-up paddling. It's something that he's recently discovered and he's actually become really, really good at it. Not just stand-up paddling, but like stand-up paddle surfing. You know, he's designed this line of boards with a board builder in Hawaii named Blaine Chambers. And these, um, so they're really kind of high performance surf stand up paddle boards. And I don't know if he's actually talked about that yet or put that on the market, but it's definitely in the works. And um, so, at any rate, he talked a little bit about stand up paddling here at Hobie Surfboards in Dana Point. 
I love any kind of surfing, to be honest. Body surfing, you know, bodyboarding, um, you know, play around. Um, but sub surfing is extremely hard. It's a very, it's quite a, uh, quite a broad skill, uh, or a lot of, you know, broad skill levels, you know, to, to learn. Um, multi skills, in fact. You've got this thing in your hands, you've got this big board. Uh, we've got to learn, we've got to be really, really slow with how we learn how to subsurf and uh, and definitely go to places where there's only subsurfing. I think uh, we put a lot of people in danger when we're um, especially just intermediate to beginning on subsurfing uh, because they've got this big old surfboard, you have to start off on a big board. Um, and also, you know, because I love subsurfing and when I'm actually normally surfing, uh, you know, I don't know how to sort of differentiate the two, but subsurfing. When I see someone who's not so good in the lineup and on normal surfing, I really get the frustration. And so uh, it's, it's really important for me as a subsurfer to really make that clear that subsurfing is, is, is a very special, um, sort of needs special areas, really. We need to look at um, surfing places where there's not so many surfers uh, around who are you know, just in there just fun, especially kids. Uh, you know, you've got three knives, four knives underneath the board, uh, sharp knives, fins, and we've got a sharp nose, and we've got to take responsibility for that. So that's our key thing, I think, when we hit the water, and just make sure that we look out for other people. But I love it. It's one of the biggest challenges of my life, was learning how to surf with a paddle in my hands and, and understand how to stand up and, you know, paddle back out and figure it out and actually gives me a lot of fitness, gives me a lot of strength and actually it's really complimentary to normal surfing once we get it. Of course, we love to end every conversation of Surf Splendor hearing about what our guests are riding currently. And in addition to stand-up paddle surfboards, Tom Carroll is just a surfboard junkie. He has boards that he's collected since he actually started surfing, so he spans a wide era of boards. And he's maintained some really long-term relationships with some of the world's best shapers. Of course, they want to get their boards under Tom's feet. So Tom had quite a bit to say about the subject. Uh, yeah, yeah, my relationship with Pat Rawson, the shaper from Hawaii. This guy is one of the most extraordinary... Um, uh, shapers I've ever come across. He's, he's still shaping beautiful surfboards today. And uh, the board that I surfed in the Heritage Heat was actually a remake of the 1991 board I did on the, with the pink board that I did the snap-on. Uh, miraculously, I sourced... Uh, I had five boards out of that quiver that Pat did that year in 1991. And one of them... Well, the one that I surfed in the final is, is, is in half... And in a cabinet in uh, Barry Kanai Puni's Board Riders Club store in Haleiwa, up on the up on the wall. But so I couldn't get a hold of that to take the measurements. So I, I sourced uh, the seven foot version of this board um, because I had five out of the quiver, um, but this one was available. And I and I got Simon Anderson to help me to get all the measurements that Pat required to make the the um, the replica. And he Pat did a, just a beautiful job with that. And I was able to surf that in the heritage heat, and it felt like I was—I came back home, you know. Um, but Pat, we started our relationship in 19, 
85 and immediately struck it off and when we when as surfers and we get a relationship with a shaper uh you know and you push into your limits and you get that connection with a shaper he could he was the one person that i needed to actually get my performance levels to where i wanted to in hawaii in particular and that's where he you know, still, it's just, just a beautiful shape, and his boards are just like Rolls Royces. Combination of Rolls Royces and uh, and Ferraris, <laughs> I guess, for surfing. And I think that's it, it, you just can't get a better. I can't get a better board for really serious waves. Um, yeah, and it's still there today. Pat and I are really tight. Also, Mike Barron shapes me some beautiful surfboards, and so Mike's um, done me a beautiful five eleven. That I have with me, um, he does me. He, uh, this one's like a little bat tail. I know it sounds crazy, it's sort of like a swallowtail, really elaborate swallowtail. But for I do, um, I do quad, I do thruster, I do a combination of that sort of design. I love, um, I just love surfboards. They're just a beautiful thing. Um, but um, MB Mike Barons has been an extraordinary um, source of inspiration for me too. He's just got that amazing kind of ability to actually he knows he's been shaping for years and years and years just like Pat so when we get that sort of knowledge in a surfboard uh, I can really feel it on the wave to Tom Carroll's latest book, TC, on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. And also just wanted to give a shout out to uh, Hobie Surf Shop in Dana Point. What an incredible job they've done. I mean, they're one of the original surf shops in California, founded by Hobie Alter, one of the pioneers of polyurethane surfboard production so um, a lot of history there and they do great events like hosting this talk with tom carroll and also a shout out to bob mcknight and quicksilver for all the incredible work that they've done over the years and supporting tom since the early 80s you know um, through thick and thin so i think that's really amazing and they've got a great relationship with him and he's still doing incredible work with quicksilver so i'm going to actually let bob mcknight talk us out of this episode um he opened up the evening talking about um the early days making board shorts and establishing hobie surf shop as one of their very first accounts so i thought that was a cool bit of surf history that is worth leaving in this episode so stick around if you want to hear that story from bob and otherwise we just thank you for tuning in as always thank you for sharing this show with friends and if you'd like to you can comment about today's episode or any past episode on surfsplendorpodcast.com we'll have photos and video of tom carroll surfing from over the years on this episode's page and you can also follow us on social media at surf splendor and then just make sure to rate and review the show in iTunes. That helps other people to find it, and it helps our show to grow. All right? Thank you very much. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Surf News. 
And uh, until then, this is David Scales signing off, reminding you to shred on. He's a little bit incorrect. Hobie was our first account in America. Our very first account. They were, as you know, well, maybe you don't know, the young, younger people don't know, but we all know. It used to be down the street down there. And um, it was great because Jeff Hackman, my partner, and I made these shorts kind of out of the back of our garage. We, I put the snaps in every pair. Jeff ironed every pair. He's this world champion surfer, and he's ironing board shorts. But we used to get about 24 pairs out of production every day. And we'd drive them up and down the coast and pedal them out of the back of my VW van and collect the money. And then we'd go pay the fabric guy and the Velcro guy and the snap guy and the... <laughs> And it really was a, you know, a, a great American story about just two guys up and down the coast trying to, you know, sell some shorts, go surfing, hang out with all the guys that owned these places. Back then, surf shops were, um, I mean, they were really small. They carried surfboards, they carried wetsuits, they carried wax, name of the shop, and that was it. First $10 they got, they went and got a six-pack of beer, and that was Turn the music on and talk story all day long. If you don't believe me, you can ask Don Craig. He's around here somewhere. He was at one of those ones in Newport Beach called Newport Service Port. Actually, it was Russell before then. But anyway, um, but Hobie, we'd, we'd come by and show them the shorts and told them what we were going to do for weeks. And they put this sign up on there. They used to have this sign, like those old theater signs. You put up the letters. You have to get up on a ladder and put them up there. And it said... Quicksilver coming soon. And he left it up there for like a month. Quicksilver coming soon. And everyone kind of knew what Quicksilver was because they were seen in the magazines. They just didn't know how to get them. They, we, we, we brought them to America, but they were seen in a lot of great surfers in the magazines at the time because traveling surfers went through Bell's Beach, got Quicksilver shorts, and off they went. And they, they ended up in center spreads and cover shots and all that all around the world. And Hobie's got... Quicksilver coming soon. And then when we finally delivered them, I think we brought in like 24 pairs or something, and I'm, I'm sure they wanted a bunch more, but we brought in 24 pairs, and the guy ran out of the ladder, put the sign up, and put, they're here. <laughs> Just, they're here. And then Jeff and I, you know, we kept going, and we came back the next day, and he goes, okay, well, they're all gone. Like, okay, that's great, great news, you know, but... So that's our great little Hobie story there. First account, we had three first accounts, but Hobie was it. Um, Newport Service Port and Valserve are our three kind of home places. Mozart.